2: dearest listeners. Uh, and yeah, I spelt the dear in dearest, d because, you know, it's nearly Christmas. Um, don't worry, the podcast hasn't really started yet. Uh, I mean, obviously, it has. You're listening to it. But this is a little preamble, um, and it's not an advertisement because uh, I still haven't worked out how to get anyone to give me money for this podcast. However, what it is, uh, is an offer for you, because let me tell you, you're the best. All of you. All of you are the best. Well, except you. Oh, okay. You as well, but just this once. So look, last week, uh... Uh, my stand-up special, my most recent one, The World's Full of Idiots, Let's Live in Space, uh, was added to the new comedy streaming service, Next up, uh, And next up is an excellent Netflix-style site, but just for really well-filmed stand-up comedy shows. Uh, they've already got loads of shows on there from brilliant, brilliant, very funny people such as Colin Holt, uh, whose show recently made my face ache with laughter. Uh, there's Tony Law, Granier Maguire, Marcel LeConte, Richard Herring, uh, Lou Sanders, and loads and loads more. And they keep adding and growing their library of brilliant mirth all of the time. Um, Not only that, but they're also quite an ethical, comedy-loving bunch, and they split all the profits equally with the performers, which is very nice and mostly unheard of in my otherwise shitty industry. Currently, Next Up Comedy is the stupidly low subscription price of £3.50 a month to get your comedy fill, which is already hella cheap. But for all you partly political broadcast podcast listeners, if you sign up to nextupcomedy.com and use the code PARPOLBRO, then you get an extra 25% off the subscription fee for the first three months, which is... Is after your one month free that you get anyway. So that's four months, one where it's nothing, and then three where it's £2.62 a month, which is an even sillier price. And the only way you could get any lower or any sillier than that is to get completely surreal with some sort of weird offer where the site melts your computer and then your computer grows legs, lays an egg and runs off. So, head to nextupcomedy.com before January the 1st, enter Parpol Bro as your code when you sign up, and then be prepared for any shit 2017 throws at us by having enough comedy backed up in order to survive. Thanking you. And now, the podcast. Hello, and welcome to Partly Political Broadcast, episode 42. I'm Tina Duyep, and look, I'm going to come clean. Uh, since I started this podcast, it too has been overrun and controlled by state-owned Russian hackers, which has completely ruined the validity of the content of the show. Sorry, I mean, uh, my podcast has been controlled by the terrible state of rushed hack jokes, which have also completely ruined the validity of the content. If anything, if this show had been secretly run by the Russians, the gag content would be much higher on account of there being several smaller jokes of decreasing size inside each normal size joke. And I'd feel comforted knowing that my listenership would massively increase due to all the Soviet state surveillance operatives tuning in. Hi guys. Yes, it seems Vladimir Putin and Russia may have had a hand in dictating the US presidential election that now means that the next president of America is the real-life version of how Pixar might animate an angry wind. It's almost like everyone assumed the Cold War died in Season 4, but then in Season 10, it turned out it had been in disguise as one of the main characters all along, and its revenge reveal is when everyone says the show really jumped the shark. Of course, President-elect Donald Trump says that the US intelligence reports on Russia intervening are ridiculous, which is quite rich coming from a man who stated this weekend that when he's president he won't need daily intelligence briefings as he's already smart enough. Which leads us to pose the question, if a fool presumes something to be ridiculous, is the ridiculousness cancelled out and therefore it's something to be taken seriously, or because someone whose regular commentary encapsulates what it means to be ridiculous so perfectly, does this mean that Trump can spot what's actually ridiculous quicker than anyone else? Hmm, tough question. Time Magazine named Donald Trump their Person of the Year last week, causing much outrage online, even though the magazine does state that it's based on whoever has had the most global influence, for better or for worse. And yes, it is for worse, because Trump has already complained that the award should be called Man of the Year, presumably because he's further proving that he's a massive sexist, or maybe it's just because he wants everyone to understand that he's a man, despite looking more like a scrawled face drawn on a broken leather armchair. Personally, I think it makes sense that Trump was named Time Person of the Year because he's got a big round face, two little hands and is easily wound up. More on the US goings-on later in the show. Meanwhile, in the UK, our Prime Minister Theresa May is now suggesting that we have a red, white and blue Brexit, possibly representing the wealth scarring and bruising the country will have when it's all finally over with. Or perhaps it's simply red, white and blue dressed like Where's Wally, which explains why no plans for Brexit have been found anywhere yet. Meanwhile, Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson accused Saudi Arabia of fighting a proxy war in Yemen, which it is. And he accused them also of twisting Islam, which sounds like an amazing dance that we should all definitely try. He then had to attend a press conference with the Saudi foreign minister, which is Maximum Orcs. And the Saudi foreign minister said that he thought that what Boris had said had been misconstrued in the press. Because let's face it, after Boris's Brexit campaign, it's unlikely that he ever means anything he ever says, especially when it actually has some truth to it. When Johnson's comments on Saudi Arabia were revealed, Theresa May's spokeswoman stressed that they were the views of the foreign secretary and not that of the government. Because as the past year has showed, the government hasn't got a clue what it thinks of any other countries, let alone its own. And political party leaders have revealed their official Christmas cards. Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn's card has a picture of a dove, but if you look closely, it's also the numbers 2017. Ooh. Many would say that this is a sort of hope for peace in the next year, but I'm concerned it's that Corbyn just couldn't actually choose between a Christmas or a Happy New Year's card, and again proves how unclear his policies are. Liberal Democrat leader Tim Farron has a drawing from a child in his constituency of a dog asleep in a crescent moon, both wearing Santa hats. And that of course symbolises his extreme stance on how he wants to put to sleep any dogs that lie with Islam. I mean, it doesn't, but imagine how tiny and angry Tim Farron's face would get if we spread that rumour. Brilliant. And Prime Minister Theresa May has three different cards, all designed and drawn by children from her constituency of Maidenhead, proving that what she hopes for in 2017 is an increase in child labour. Thanks again uh, to all of you for continuing to listen to this show. We're on episode 42. Can you believe it? Um, I'm sorry for the sort of non-advert at the start of today's episode. Uh, I'm really not keen on the idea of advertising this show which I like to consider is non-partisan apart from all my personal bias. Um, But as Next Up Comedy are a genuinely good bunch uh, and they're putting my last two stand-up shows on there, I thought it seemed fair. So do get on that offer. Um, It's genuinely a brilliant site. Um, Also, another thing to sort of advertise uh, that I haven't been paid to advertise or asked to do, um, but the brilliant Simple Politics re- website uh, run by Tatton Spiller, who long-time listeners might remember he was a guest on this podcast the day after the Brexit referendum results um, if you remember that uh, he's made some brilliantly fun political games uh, that you can buy on the Simple Politics website um, or the simple-politics.myshopify.com uh, hyphen politics.myshopify.com. and these games are excellent, um, I- I'm plugging this mainly, not I said, he hasn't asked me but I bought the games because I think they're excellent and um, you really should get on board if you you like your politics um, there's a game called guest minister which is sort of like a clever guess who for politicians uh, there's the simple politics Christmas pub quiz and there is this is the brilliant one the great British break-off where you can play out the Brexit negotiations yourself and no doubt uh, still end up doing a much better job than the government is even when you're pissed and full of Christmas dinner and feel a little bit sick uh, so do head to simple-politics.myshopify.com um, and grab them in time for Christmas Day so that you can then play them with that relative you know that one and then have arguments even worse than normal when you play Monopoly with them, and they insist on being the shoe because they hate the liberal elite, but then they immediately buy Mayfair and laugh when they charge you rent. You know that one. Right, uh, all plugs over. Um, Cheers again for your ears. Uh, Thanks for all your Patreon donations so far as well. please keep that going if any of you fancy donating a little bit more uh, and I apologise to those of you who have donated for the terrible extra long bonus jingle that you all got last week I hope your ears uh, enjoyed that as much as it's possible um, if you would like to get occasional weird bonus content uh, and help this show then please do head to patreon.com forward slash and sponsor me a little bit um, of course thanks for all your lovely iTunes reviews as well we're now on 50 reviews which is chuffing lovely indeed uh, of course more reviews are always great and if you can keep spreading the word about this show, it gives me even more reason to spend my week reading news, screaming about it and then doing this show instead of punching my television. Uh, Incidentally, on the punching the television note, uh, there was an article going around last week about how the audience producer on BBC's Question Time had been reposting Britain First posts on her Facebook page, which has really put into question if that person should be in charge of finding a non-partisan audience mix for the weekly political show and perhaps why recent Question Time shows have had a very, very right-wing tone to them. Or, you know, that could just be this country. now, these posts on the audience producer's Facebook page were about Remembrance Day, uh, and so some people let to her defence saying, look, she was just reposting the Remembrance Day sentiment, and she didn't realise that they were Britain First posts. But look, let's face it, if you don't realise that Britain First are a far-right fascist group and quite dangerous, yet you work on a non-partisan politics show, you probably shouldn't be working on a current affairs non-partisan politics show, should you? I mean, really, surely that's the least that you should know. Um, So for me, anyway, I'm just telling you, because that is the final reason to stop watching a show that seems to increasingly fuel hate and just make me feel terrible about the world on a weekly basis. And so I'm going to not watch Question Time again unless my doctor says I have unnecessarily low blood pressure and prescribes me to watch it in order to boost them a little bit higher. Uh, In this world of increasingly fake news and clickbait, I just think a show that puts both Nigel Farage and Louise Menchon in the same week in the hope that it'll boost ratings isn't a show that you should be getting your political views from. I mean, you'd be better off spending an hour screaming at a dog while kicking a bin and punching yourself in the head for a similar level of intelligent debate. I hope this podcast, as an alternative, provides some sort of sensible discussions on politics, albeit, as I said, biased towards my attitude on politics, which some of you might call left-wing, but I like to describe as, why doesn't everyone just stop being a dick to each other politics? And, you know, there are many, many other actual good sources of info if you look for them, so please, please continue to do so. Uh, On this week's show, I speak to Carl Gardner, who is a former government lawyer and talks to me all about the Supreme Court hearing on Brexit that's been happening this past week and changes my opinions on it. It's a really fascinating interview. He's great. He was great to talk to. Uh, So do listen to that. And I'll also be looking more at Trump rumblings. Yes, I said Trump rumblings on purpose, so it still sounds even more like I mean farts. Yes, I am very proud indeed. But before all of that, there is this. Prime Minister Theresa May is said to be considering letting local councils raise council tax in order to fund social care services. Quite how letting an underfunded council take more money off underfunded individuals to raise money for an underfunded system makes sense, I don't know. It feels like there's a portion of that circle missing, that underfunding circle, where the social care services should really be helping maybe an aging billionaire who then hires all the underfunded people for really well-paid jobs. But then I realise that that would only be the case in some sort of feel-good Christmas movie, and we're all living in 2016 real-life Britain, which is far more akin to having to watch Fred Claus on a loop until you cry. Local councils across England have suffered a 40% cut in government grants in the last six years so they could do with raising funds somehow. Similarly, social care services such as care homes, nursing homes, Meal on Wheels, um, they're all in crisis as well. And if you heard last week's episode with Emma Runswick, uh, she told us how cuts to social care meant that patients in hospitals who should be going to beds in nursing homes aren't, and so it causes bed blocking in hospitals instead. And by bed blocking, I mean other patients in need can't use them because they're still in use. Not that people are sleeping how I do at night, where I sort of cover both sides of the bed at once and force my wife to try her best to be comfortable around my extended limbs. But the big problem with funding all this with council tax rises is that council tax rises affect poor people the most. Council taxes 4.6% of post-benefit pre-tax income for the poorest 20% of households, while it's only 1.6% for the richest 20%. So essentially to fund welfare, you'd be giving even more people a need for welfare. Next, Theresa May vows to stop risk of flooding by drowning the most likely hit areas in tons of water to reduce impact. If you're a listener who uses Southern Rail trains, or rather, over the past year, hasn't been able to use any Southern Rail trains, then you'll know that any hope of having a reasonable train service in your area has been completely thrown off the rails by the dispute between unions and bosses. Well, fear not, because Home Secretary Amber Rudd has got involved, so I'm sure it's going to be all solved in days, probably by her just deporting everyone involved. Amber Rudd has had a go at the rail unions for the three days of strikes that are going to happen between now and Christmas and is going to affect over 500,000 passengers a day, which is a bloody lot of people. And it is partly the union's fault, uh, because they are the ones choosing to strike. However, the reason the unions are striking is because Southern Rail want to operate driver-only trains, meaning that the driver will be in charge of absolutely everything, such as closing doors. And Rail Union ASLEF say that not having guards to operate doors is going to endanger passengers on ever overcrowded trains that often feel more like an exercise in playing human Tetris. Meanwhile, RMT, the other rail union, are trying to protect the job of conductors and so they're also on strike. No, not the ones that make music stuff, uh, the other ones, the ones on trains with the tickets. But really all of this is to do with the increasing amounts of train customers on an increasingly unreliable system with constantly increasing costs. The antiquated way that the rail system works includes very, very expensive overtime payments for staff working on a Sunday that actually date all the way back to the age of steam trains. And it includes working benefits such as walking time allowances, which is a real thing, for drivers to reach the front of the train from their crew room. Yeah, really. And unions, of course, are keen to keep those comfy benefits for their members because, let's face it, you would as well. Wouldn't it be lovely if you were given a bit of extra money to walk from your chair to the toilet? Damn straight. But look, none of this, really, would be a problem if private ownership of rail actually meant private investment in rail and therefore the money would be there to cover all of this anyway. But the fact is, over 90% of all rail funding still comes from the public sector. For example, 2010-2011, uh, private investment in the railway was between £100 million to £380 million, while public money and money from fare rises was over £10 billion, all contributing to the UK having the most expensive rail service in Europe. And that's not even including the sandwiches at the buffet cart, that for those prices should be egg mayonnaise between two gold leaves. The government rightly want the UK's rail service to move into the 21st century, which seems incredibly unlikely when it can barely move from Brighton to London on time. But driver-only trains mean job losses and lots of money invested to upgrade trains which in turn will only mean higher fares to provide all of that. At the same time, a current lack of trains also isn't really helping anyone and letting no one blow off any steam at all. So is it the union's faults? Is it rail bosses' faults? Is it the fault of years and years of terrible privatisation? I'd say in this case, all of them have been giving terribly bad signals. Hopefully they'll all conduct themselves properly and southern rail passengers can get their lives back on track as soon as possible. Yes, I am proud of all those train buns. In fact, you could say I'm chuffed. Eat it. As always, there are currently more things up in the air with Brexit than a juggler in a helicopter, and they're all equally as annoying and concerning. A large majority of MPs voted in the Commons for Theresa May to trigger Article 50 before March 31st of 2017. However, in an excellent parliamentary hoisting of Theresa May by her own petard, a slightly smaller majority also voted for the Prime Minister to publish her Brexit plan before that happens, meaning that now there is only three and a half months for her to actually come up with one. To be fair, though, it also means there's only three and a half months for Labour, the opposition, to work out what their stance on Brexit is as well, with some Labour members now deciding that the best way to win back voters is to jump on the anti-immigration bandwagon. A bandwagon that is already overfull of pompous, ill-informed opinions, and whenever it finally reaches its destination will no doubt concern all those who reside there. Former Labour frontbencher Andy Burnham has said that free movement is discriminatory, because of course there is nothing more discriminatory and restricting than freedom. If anything, allowing someone that much freedom means they're probably overwhelmed with movement possibilities, which must be awful for them, and that just discriminates against all those people who only like limited options, right? Meanwhile, Shadow Home Secretary Diane Abbott has said that Labour has never had an open door policy, which is a shame as having an open door policy might allow a few more of us to see if they're actually planning anything behind all those closed ones. Meanwhile, the support group for EU nationals in the UK, the 3 million, are demanding assurances from the UK government that they will be allowed to stay with indefinite leave to remain status. I think that's a bit premature as post-Brexit, they might be quite happy for an excuse to go. Meanwhile, analysis from the University of Sheffield of over 3 million tweets on Twitter over a six month period of June to November shows that Leave voters talked more about immigration than anything else. Surprised? No. And what it does do is prove that not only can you definitely talk about immigration in this country, you can do it constantly for six months while still managing to not make any actual relevant factual points. I look forward to the I'm sorry I haven't a clue adding it as a game show very soon. Oh, and newspapers today, as I record this, it's Monday the 12th of December, they have decided that in a news article about Ian Brady, the Moors murderer, that talks about him having lung cancer, they think it is relevant to mention that he's also an ardent Brexiteer, because, you know, that's definitely the man that anyone wants on their side of an argument. Ironically, of course, if Ian Brady had murdered children 20 years later, he'd have found it very hard to bury them in the Moors without all the EU conservation laws. Of course, the biggest Brexit story last week was the government's appeal case at the Supreme Court to overturn the High Court's ruling that Parliament needs a say on the triggering of Article 50, even though MBs have now voted to trigger Article 50. Confused? Well, you should be. But that's okay because so am I. And it seems to be fair, most of the government and all the press are constantly about all of it. So this week, to explain it, I interviewed Carl Gardner. Carl was a barrister and former government lawyer where he worked for twelve years advising ministers and government departments on all areas, including advising on EU constitution negotiations. Carl now writes and lectures in law, and so if anyone knows what's going on, it's gonna be him. And I should say that this was a fascinating chat I had with Carl, and as you'll hear, he actually manages to completely change my opinion on whether or not the High Court and Supreme Court cases are a good thing or not. Um also a little bit of Joe says. Yeah, while I was speaking to Carl, someone in my street decided that what they do is, uh, beat their horn for an insanely long amount of time. I accept no responsibility for this, but if you know who that was, tell them they're a prick. So hopefully this interview will clear all that EU stuff up at least a little bit. Here's Carl. So, hi Carl. Um... For non-legal-minded people like myself and probably some of the listeners, uh, most of the listeners probably, um, would you mind summing up what the past week's uh, government appeal in the Supreme Court on the Brexit process was all about and why on earth it's important?
1: Well, it's what it's all about is whether the government has got power to trigger Article 50. That's, that's the simple way of thinking about it. Um, I mean, the, the straightforward way lawyers would normally think about whether the government's got power to do something like this is to assume you do it using something called the, the prerogative prerogative powers. Now, that's kind of... I mean, it sounds all, all kind of loyal and stuff, but, but what it is is just like the inherent powers of, of the government. And I think, really, until now, I think everybody had assumed that the government had this power... Um, you know, usually it's got lots of prerogative powers to do things like, you know, take us into wars and stuff uh, and and to sign treaties and leave them, usually. So I think everybody assumed, I certainly assumed, uh, well, it's got the power to trigger Article 50 by the prerogative. But this sort of interesting argument has been put together, uh, you know, saying that the haven't. And, uh, you know, I, 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 I think surprised a lot of people by winning in the High Court. Why does it... I'm not... You know, I mean, can I just whisper this to you? I'm sure it matters that much, really, because, or it matters a lot to it matters a lot to sort of constitutional law nerds like me.
2: Sure,
1: I guess politically, or, or it's like a hurdle thrown in the way of Brexit. Um, I mean, assuming Gina Miller wins, um, you know, the, the government will, if it wants to Brexit, it will then have to get the legal power to do so. Uh, that that means an act of parliament, and and you know it then depends how difficult a majority of MPs want to be. But I mean, Labour, I think, have already said they'll they'll um, back an Article 50, you know, um, vote in Parliament if uh, on certain conditions. So it looks like they would get that legislation. And so you know, people who think you know it ain't going to stop Brexit. Unfortunately, as far as I'm concerned, (laughs) it's not going to stop Brexit, I don't think. And uh, so I think it's actually miles more important as a constitutional law case than it really is in, in the politics of Brexit.
2: That's really interesting that you say that it's a it's a, a possibly a, a hurdle because i mean like as you said that this week um MPs voted in in parliament for uh, they voted for an amendment for Theresa May to trigger article 50 in march and then they voted for another labor amendment saying she has to give a plan so they are clearly Already in favour of it going ahead, Uh, so and and with with all the the, a lot of the press was saying that this is this is just blocking Brexit happening. Um, Do you think that that is the case? I mean, you're saying the constitutional law part of it is quite important, though, isn't it? Yeah,
1: it's it's important. It's especially important to people like me. Uh, You know, it's it's important legally, but I mean, most people never think about these legal. Questions, you know, I'll I'll be uh, if Gina Miller does win, I'll be tell, telling my sort of law students about how this is a milestone in the um, in the uh, reduction of the prerogative powers over the years and a new kind of development of of constitutional doctrines that have whittled away at the prerogative. But I mean. Who's into? I mean, half the audience is probably asleep when I've said that, <laughs> because uh, who really is interested in all that stuff? Not, not only law students mainly. Um, I mean, I, I think um, I suppose the idea of the campaigners who who, uh, who run this case is, um, and well, I mean, I, you know, I don't know, but I suppose part of the idea of this case is that it slows down Brexit a bit anyway, and. and if, if they win, and it gives time, you know, for MPs to cause some trouble, if they want to. um, not not seeing a lot of evidence yet that MPs, you know, who are still remain minded have actually got the courage to do anything.
2: Sure, sure, well, I, I guess, if, yeah. Even
1: if this case buys them time, you know.
2: Yeah, which I, I suppose could be quite useful, considering we still don't seem to have a plan uh, at all yet. Um, so in, plan, in...
1: plan, didn't pa- plan.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: Surely you don't want to give away the government's negotiating hand. <laughs> <laughs> sort of that. Sorry. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, that's all right. I mean, you know, it's red, white and blue Brexit, so that it'll all be fine, won't it? Um, yeah. So so in terms of the... Uh, if we go back to the, 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 the appeal just for a minute, then, I'm sort of... Uh, I'm wary now, sort of feeling like maybe this isn't that important. We probably shouldn't discuss it. But, but <laughs> the, the Supreme don't Court, uh, uh, do you think they're not going to give their actual verdict till January? But do you think it, it looks like they've made a decision? Do you think it looks like it's going to go one way or the other? Well, I
1: don't think you can tell anything from what the judges said in court last week. I think that's a bit of a, a mugs game, actually. I and mean, I've done loads in my time. I've done loads of trying to predict, or predict what judges are going to do. Uh, from, you know, the questions you've asked in court. And uh, honestly, I can tell you it's a mokes game, that <laughs> and, and so i, I would, not going by that. but just just going by my observation of the Supreme Court over the years, over the last few years in particular, and the judgments in cases. Um, I, I think they're going to uphold the, the High Court uh, judgment. I think that because... I mean, I I actually think the High Court Judgment is wrong. Right. I I think the government's got a very good case in this appeal. But I think you have to be, um, as a lawyer, you have to be quite a sort of orthodox, uh, uh, some people would say conservative, thinker about the Constitution uh, in order to agree with the government. Like I said, I mean, it was the orthodox position. Most people uh, uh, accepted without... Question before um, you know this this summer, this last summer. Uh, so I have to. I think you have to be a fairly orthodox uh, um, constitutional thinker, and I just don't think the majority of the judges in the in the Supreme Court are. I think they, they, we've seen in some previous cases that the Prince Charles letters case was a great example. We've seen that they're really interested in some uh, very very trendy i would say um legal doctrines that's like something called um, the principle of legality comes to mind particularly there they seem to be mad keen on these things but judges like lord newberger um seem to be mad keen on them and um maybe lord reed as well and i just think they're going to be too creative they're going to be too psychologically i'm not i'm not saying they think this consciously but i think subconsciously i think they're attracted to creativity and innovation and i think they're going to tend psychologically to want to lay down a, a landmark principle in this case and you can only really do that by agreeing with miller so right. i think that's what they're going to do um, just, that's a mad guess i mean there were 11, 11 justices and that's a mad guess i, I think it might be about um eight, three, seven, right. four, eight, three to
2: to miller Wow. And and what would that... That would mean then the government would need a new law to trigger Brexit, is that right? Or that was what the government that's, lawyer, James Edie said, wasn't it, I think?
1: That's right, and that's not controversial to you, and that's not just the government's view, that's that's like every lawyer's view. So, for instance, the... the um, uh, I mean, there's a lot of the media debate, I think, because what we tend to hear is from political journalists, and obviously they think politically rather than legally, and so to them... What this is about is a vote in parliament right um but um it's not just i mean they had a vote in parliament on brexit the other day that actually led a lot of people to think the the, the appeal was pointless or something but that, that that's completely wrong because a vote in parliament is, is not enough like i say the starting point is this case is about whether the government's got power to yeah. make notification under Article 50. Now, if it hasn't, and that that's what uh, judgment for Gina Miller would mean, if the government hasn't got legal power, then it needs to get that legal power from somewhere, and and that would require an, an act of Parliament to change the law and explicitly say, you know, the government's got the power to to notify.
2: Sure, because because part of the or and I say this from my complete lack of understanding of constitutional law. Um, but the or part of the reasoning that I understood was that because uh, Brexit will affect so many uh sort of local level you know areas and and uh I'm trying to think of what the the correct term was now, but you know it's it's it comes into things that MPs should be able to have a say on. Um, and do you think that that was sort of a reasonable? Uh, I've worded that terribly, and I do apologise. Um, but do you, do you think that's a that's a reasonable <laughs> argument? Yeah. Then, so I, I mean, I heard you say earlier that you didn't think that the that, that, that the high court result was was correct. But uh, surely, if Brexit, I mean, Brexit is going to affect every single area of UK law, isn't it? Well, that, well, that's a
1: political argument, and it's not a legal one. So I, I wouldn't give you a lot of marks in, in an essay. Sorry, <laughs> that's okay. But, 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 the, the the question here, the question the legal question, is whether um, triggering Article 50 would change the law. If if it would change the law, then arguably there's no prerogative power to do that. There's an old, old constitutional principle that the prerogative powers can't change the law. So, but it, an argument. That, that one of the main arguments for Gina Miller is that triggering an Article 50 would mean, in practice, that the whole of EU law would inevitably go out of our system, and, and the prerogative can't do that. And the other argument is that um, the argument is that when we joined Parliament passed the European Communities Act in 1972, the other argument is that somehow it's implicit in the Act that Parliament. Must have intended that you could only leave by act of parliament; that you, you couldn't leave by prerogative. I mean, I, I just think both those arguments really weak, actually. Right. Um, but, but, um, like, you know, of course, it wouldn't change the law at all. You know, if 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 if, if um, Theresa May triggered Article 50 tomorrow, we'd still have, you know, EU equal pay law, EU. You know, the common agricultural payments and all that, the common agricultural rules, would still be operating in this country the following week or the New Year week. So it actually would not change the law at all. I think it's a, So I think that argument is kind of. And blown well out of.
0: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves.
1: And the argument about the relationship between statutes—it's all reading far too much into what Parliament must have intended in 1972, which, which we all know it didn't. Yeah. You know, we all we all know that three years later there was a referendum. and Nobody was suggesting Harold Wilson would have needed another act to take us out. So, uh, I, I I just I think the whole case is really weak, actually. But um, you know, High Court disagreed with me. And uh, like I say, I expect the Supreme Court will disagree with me too. It's quite a good, quite a good trick, incidentally. That, Tim. if you in, in law, if you say, well, I think the judgment is wrong, but I think the Supreme Court will agree with it, uh, then you know, whatever happens, I can say I oh, was right. <laughs> <laughs>
2: that's that's very nicely done. Yeah, it's quite, quite useful. That's very useful. Yeah, that's brilliant. Um, I I might occasionally use that and pretend I know more than I do. Um, I uh, so so it's really interesting. So because I'm guessing then the things like the the laws you mentioned they will have to be changed separately at a much later date in a completely different case, uh, depending on how the Brexit plans work. Is that what you're saying? There'll be a whole there'll be a whole heap of other uh, trials and possible law changes further down the line.
1: Well, probably not. I mean, there'll no doubt be lots of other challenge in brexit I and mean, then we've already heard about them there's an article 127 challenge about about the european economic agreement there's an irish challenge that's just been started but no, you know the, the changes wouldn't really be by cases but you, you know the google david davis talks about this so-called great repeal bill yeah that that's the thing that would really change the law in this country and and as it were the, um, you know make the legal changes that were required to to um, uh, take EU law out of our domestic law. That would that would actually be the legal vehicle doing it. That's what it
2: seems to me, anyway. Right, and is that because because uh, I think and again the thing a lot of people get confused with is that there's uh, there's quite a big difference between the European Court and the EU. <laughs> so, and I'm assuming leaving the EU, we'd still be under a lot of European Court rules, or is that a is that no? Uh,
1: no, sorry, and that's. A, the, I mean, although I mean a lot of people get mixed up between the EU and the European Court of Human Rights.
2: Right, right.
1: Uh, but, but, but um, no, I mean, the, the whole one of the whole ideas of Brexit, or at least the hard Brexiters, is to take us out of the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice, the EU
2: Court. Sure.
1: So, I think, unless they definitely go for soft Brexit, and uh, the Norwegian model people will have heard of, which is membership of the EEA, the European Economic Area, unless, unless the government goes for that option, then I think we, we probably will have said goodbye to the European court of justice,
2: the, the EU Court, yeah. We'll get back to Carl in a minute, but first it is time to catch up with the Trumpocalypse. Oh, say can you see... It has all gone to shite. A lot has been happening in the last few weeks in terms of finding out what a Trump presidency might be like. Uh, to summarise, or at this time of year to winterise, it's going to be a climate change denying, dodgy, self-profiteering, hate-filled, bigoted, uncontrolled twitch storm shit show. Don't get me wrong, there is the odd glimpse of gold amongst all the turds, including Trump's promise that he's gonna scrap the globalization TTP project in his first day in office, which is, on the whole, a really great thing. But that barely balances out with him keeping his stake in his company while handing it to his kids, or his administration now including two people accused of beating their wives, three army generals with quite controversial views, one white supremacist, three Goldman Sachs executives, you know, the bank that was hugely involved in the 2008 crash, six people who donated over $12 million to Trump's campaign, and. A man who doesn't believe in dinosaurs even though he's going to be working with loads of them for the next four years. Trump's Environmental Protection Agency Secretary thinks global warming is a hoax, his Education Secretary wants to dismantle public education, his Attorney General opposes the Voting Rights Act, his Housing Secretary opposes the Fair Housing Act, his Health Secretary wants to dismantle Medicare and his Labour Secretary is against a minimum wage and his Treasury Secretary helped cause a financial crash and then profited from it. Oh, and on top of all of that, Donald Trump is keeping his role as executive producer on Celebrity Apprentice because he obviously has such a firm understanding of exactly which candidates are best for the job. But in particular, on this show, I'd like to quickly look at two things that have happened in US politics news these past few weeks to do with Trump. And that's mainly because these are the things that might affect us here in the UK more than anything else. Firstly, Trump's call to the Taiwanese president Tsai Ing-wen, where she congratulated him on his victory. Now that sounds all fairly standard, and like me, you're probably assuming that other than citing Wen saying congrats and Trump mispronouncing her name 400 times and then saying how he deserves it because he's the best, it was probably a fairly uneventful conversation. But actually, that was the first time a US president or leader has spoken directly with a leader of Taiwan since 1979, before the US and China agreed on the One China Policy, which sounds like some sort of agreement that you can only have one plate at a time, but it wasn't that, it was a diplomatic recognition that Taiwan is part of China, even though Taiwan didn't really get a say in this. Yeah, we've all been in those relationships, haven't we? Over history, Taiwan has either been owned by Japan or China, with brief moments of European rule because, look, we can't leave anywhere alone, can we? But there is a growing independence movement in Taiwan at the moment to become an independent state, and Donald Trump's phone call to the Taiwanese president strengthens this. And really, this is a big old fuck you to China to say that America no longer cares about the one-China policy when it comes to trade and international relations. Trump has since told Fox News, you know, Fox News, the one that's so-called because it's reporting is the equivalent to that horrible screaming noise a fox makes while it's fucking. He told them that he wouldn't feel bound by a one-China policy unless we make a deal with China having to do other things, including trade. So this is a biggie, as it seems that whether Trump knows what he's doing or not, his tampering with international trade policies could have drastic effects globally. In some ways, it could be great for Taiwan if this helps push it towards an independent state and breaks up China's monopoly. But it's more likely that Trump wants the best deals possible from China, probably for his own brand of suits and ties that are all made there, and that means using Taiwan as a pawn because, you know, that's not at all how wars start, right? Now, the Taiwanese president has said that none of this means a policy shift for Taiwan, but various state-owned press in China have called Trump a number of negative names, including the Global Times saying he's as ignorant as a child, and China's government have said that they have serious concerns. Yeah, so do we. And in fact, that makes many of us have serious concerns, all of whom are scared about the effect of Trump's bull in China's shop. The other story, of course, is Trump's connections with Russia. A group of senators are calling for an investigation into US intelligence agencies and the CIA's findings that Russian hackers helped Trump win the election. Current president and the man everyone is going to seriously miss when he's gone, Barack Obama, ordered an investigation into the cyber hacks that took place during election campaigning. And the agencies have said that these are the attacks that caused leaked emails from and to the Democratic Party and Hillary Clinton's key aide, John Podesta. The Russian government have denied any involvement in this because, you know, that's their key characteristic. I'm fairly sure their out-of-office auto-reply is just a Russian version of Shaggy's It Wasn't Me. Of course, Trump has said that the whole thing is rubbish, but at the same time, looks like he might be taking on Rex Tillerson as Secretary of State. Rex is the chief executive of ExxonMobil Corporation, the oil and gas company who, a whistleblower revealed last year, knew all about climate change but paid scientists to cover it up so it wouldn't lose them profit. Because, you know, the end of the world won't lose you any profit, right Rex, you fucking idiot? But also, Rex has very, very close ties with Putin, has spoken out against US sanctions on Russia and has a massive bastard oil rig in Russia's bit of the Kara Sea in the Arctic. And while there's no direct links between Trump and Putin, despite Donald saying that Putin is a great leader several times and I'm sure he would know, uh, Rex Tillerson isn't his only indirect link. There's also Trump's former campaign manager, Paul Manafort, who helped uh, one of Putin's billionaire mates buy Ukrainian television assets. And there's Trump's national security adviser, Lieutenant General Michael Flynn, who's boasted of making high-level briefings to Russia's military intelligence staff several times. And several Trump properties have also been sown to Russian oligarchs for silly, silly amounts of money. Sure, you might think. I mean, what harm could happen with the US finally patching things up with their enemies since World War II, the Russians? What harm would it do for one chaotic, narcissistic, temperamental leader who gets upset if people disagree with him and who makes things up as he goes along for his own gain to buddy up with another narcissistic, temperamental leader who likes to have people killed if they disagree with him? Well, I'm sure nothing could go wrong. You know, unless you're gay, or in Syria, or the political opposition of either of those people, or a satirist. Or you don't like the taste of polonium in your lunch, or you aren't a fan of dictatorships or wars. Does anyone know where the place furthest from China, Russia, or America is? I'm just checking flight details to New Zealand now. And now back to Carl. Right, but then because there there are some banks that are asking now if they can stay under EU law for like five years post Brexit. <coughs> is that I mean, is is that doable?
1: <laughs> well, in, in I mean, the, the relationship between Britain and the EU after we've left, if we leave, I don't think it's inevitable, by the way, but if uh, assuming we leave, the relationship will be based on some new agreement, a, a new treaty, uh, which is the one that the government's got to negotiate, or the, the, probably the, the first of, of quite a few. Um, and, you know, like people in business will tell you, in principle, anything is negotiable. Isn't it? In sure. principle, if, if it's suited, um, I mean, some Brexit supporters talk about all kinds of cherry picking and having all the things we like about the EU and none of the things we don't like. And, you know, in principle, if you could reach some position that really suited the EU and suited us, it could be any kind of complications and, you know, twister, including all kinds of twister like positions where things were all incredibly confusing and complicated um but the question is you know with 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 us in the single market for banks but uh, out of the common agricultural policy and not paying a penny to europe and all that kind of thing, in principle it's all negotiable but the actual the real question questions a, a political reality but what's in it for the eu side to agree the things
2: we want that's actually that's, that's i that's i think the Most, I mean, positive uh, view of it. In that, that it is possible. It is potentially possible to cherry pick. It's just that the rest of Europe might not let us uh, in any way. Uh, But it's nice to know that they
1: might want to keep their own cherries.
2: Yeah. Sure. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, But I think that's sort of the most positive outlook uh, I've heard. Rather than oh, we're going to get nothing from this. It's going to be terrible. But I guess there is still that possibility as well. You know. Well, I'm
1: quite depressed about that. Because I still want us to stay. Still,
2: I want to. Sure. Remain.
1: And I think, I mean, all, all I have got to, I actually do. All I see ahead is disaster. <laughs> if if Brexit goes ahead, all I see is disaster. I think I think it's much more likely uh, we'll get a really kind of rancid, kind of nasty cherries. You know, you know. Uh, you know, those, those Glacé cherries, I hate them. <laughs> the sugary ones. I think we've got a load of them from last Christmas. That's what we're
2: going to get. <laughs> I like that, that we're going to Glacé cherry pick. Uh, that's going to be the outcome. Uh, that's fantastic. Um, and just uh, sort of, uh, because uh, obviously, again, uh, sort of you 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 don't think that the High Court were, or you don't think that they were right, but the 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 view from the press and the the kind of the the view of kind of I suppose the brexiteer view was uh, about what how the high court operate was quite vicious. Um, and do you think that the way in which the justice department and the legal system was kind of viewed by newspapers was was fair? I mean, do you think there's been enough support of how the UK law should operate? Because obviously, it's a sort of the defining way that Britain works, isn't it? Well, it's quite important to,
1: to, like, Western liberal democracy. I mean, you know, as you know, as I've said, I disagree with the judgment. Uh, I think there's a kind of, there's a deep kind of belief, I think, in the public who don't follow law at all. There's a deep sort of belief that law is quite easy and there's an obvious clear good answer to everything. Uh, and so this, this judgment must be either obviously right or obviously wrong. And, and that, that's not the case. The, I mean, the, the, I mean, that tabloid coverage was ludicrous, wasn't it? I mean, yeah. can you believe one, one of the judges was an, an ex Olympic fencer? <laughs> you know how, 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 how horrifying. And I mean, the, the, the and of course, the, the, the other being a bit more sinister about it. That reference to the ex Olympic fencer was just, I mean, if you're gonna have, if you're gonna sort of deliberately just bring into the argument the fact that somebody's gay right? Which is what the Daily Mail did. I mean, what's that got to do with anything? But you have to say something else, can't you? You couldn't just say, ooh, one of the judges is openly gay. You know what I mean? Any, anybody would see that that was a ridiculous thing to say. But, oh, he's, he's an openly gay ex-Olympic fencer. Somehow, um, that, that, somehow, well, that just gives you an excuse to smuggle in the gay thing. And, and uh, that was all, like, I don't know how journalists can put the name to that stuff. Actually,
2: yeah, it was. I mean, it was really yeah. horrific. Like, you said. it sort of, it felt, and in a way, if you were to read it in the in a nicer tone of voice, it would seem like some sort of weird dating profile. I felt that gay okay, excellent <laughs> Olympic fencer. Um, but but um, no, the, the uh,
1: I mean, uh, uh, the the most lawyers would be very critical of uh, the 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 Lord Chancellor. I think they got it wrong but obviously it's obviously not some kind of elected judges conspiracy against Britain
2: yeah I mean because it was what was the, the headline was enemies of the people wasn't it which is a <laughs> a strange line for um, you know people that are upholding justice uh, I suppose
1: yeah oh, I, I, I don't know what to say about that this nonsense Ex- except you know I, I not only would I not buy the Daily Mail I, I don't like to be in the same room as it <laughs>
2: You know. yeah i think that i think that applies to most of the listeners of this podcast yeah. And if any That's listeners possible. uh are male fans let me know and tell me why on earth you listen to this show um yeah uh it's but but I, from your point of view as someone that now lectures in law and you've spent uh you were a government uh lawyer for many years weren't you um yeah and it, but do you find it scary that the that the papers are turning on the legal system i mean is that what does that say about our current society is that a, a scary place to be
1: yeah a little bit because i mean the thing is that i mean the judges aren't apolitical that that would be a naive thing to say um a court judgment on a case like this is bound to be political in a sense but it, what's certainly not going on uh, a lot of people imagine this is you know remainer judges versus Brexiter judges and you know, if you are Remainer, you'll rule one way, and if you're a Brexit, you rule the other, and that's just totally wrong. I mean, I, I know that because, as I've already said, I, I disagree with the judgment. I think that the High Court's judgment, I think it was wrong. But you know, I'm I'm a Remain. I campaigned for Remain. I was knocking on doors and everything, and still wants us to remain. So you know, I'm an example of of opinions cutting across legal opinions cutting across that, and I don't think I'm uncommon, uh, and. Uh, so, that is, uh, Remain versus Brexit is certainly not the way these judges will be thinking about it. Sure. They'll be thinking about it in terms of, well, it, it's competing legal ideas, it's, it's not competing political ideas. Now the, the problem with um, the Daily Mail way of looking at it, uh, and kind of pretending that they are partisan, uh, anti-Brexit. Is that what it ends up with is people to call for the politi- for the judges to become even more political? I mean, I think the Daily Mail was calling for us to have you know confirmation hearings for justices of the courts that Appeal like they have in America, and I, at some point I expect um, populists in this country to call for uh, our Supreme Court of justices to be appointed by politicians. Sure. And if you go down that route, um, the American route, you just end up with, like, you know, a, a partisan court. I mean, it was ridiculous in America how how close Obamacare, you know, the whole president had been elected to do it, oh, a, a massive majority in Congress for it, but it came down to one vote in the Supreme Court. And if that one vote had gone the other way, um, Obamacare would have been wiped out after all those years and um I, I, I really i think the american system is a really terrible actually really terrible system um and, and uh, who knows what it'll look like if donald trump gets two or three appointments to the supreme court i, I wouldn't want to be ruled on
2: no it's is terrifying
1: get, isn't by, it? appointed by him and uh, I suspect they might be writing the judgments in Russian or something. Anyway, yeah. more difficult to follow. So, yeah. but I think all this pressure on judges potentially pushes us in that direction. Actually,
2: yeah, and because I, I think it's sort of it always surprises me that people don't seem to understand that to have sovereignty we need a non-partisan court that you know that, that operate under law. That's sort of yeah, what it means, isn't it?
1: Yeah, and I, I think most people know our judges. Um, whatever they think of them, uh, I think most people know our judges are actually trying to do the best legally. So I'm, I'm glad to say I don't think most people believe the way the Daily Mail is looking at it.
2: There, there was a call from uh, one of the Supreme Court judges in this case that there needs to be more diversity amongst Supreme Court judges. Is that Do you think that's right?
1: Well, I mean, sure. There's one woman. and uh, That's absolutely plain statistically that that's out of kilter. Um, I suppose with with you know 11 or 12 of them or however many they're supposed to be, I, I suppose um, the, you know being all white isn't right either. Um, so I agree with that. I don't I don't think it means um, I don't see how people think that would lead to different judgments. Sure. So not not not, it's not an argument against it, of course, but I, I don't think um, you know the the, the Supreme Court rules. I can't can't think of a case where it's obvious that the judgment would have been different if it had been all women or half women making the judgment. I don't know. Maybe that's an incautious statement, but (laughs) it'd be quite an interesting thing to think about. That actually, I might think about that now you've planted the idea.
2: (laughs) Brilliant. Let us know. But it's it's
1: not obvious to me at first thinking.
2: Sure. But just something that should, I mean, much like with all uh, areas of, I suppose, uh, law and business and everything, it should just be more diverse anyway. There's no harm in that, I guess. Um, sure, sure. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, that's thank you for that. You've very clearly explained it. And also, I have to say that I find it really, um, because as I said, I'm not legal minded and I didn't really know how to think about this, I suppose, personally, uh, the idea of just Theresa May being in charge of Brexit entirely scares me, <laughs> so I thought, yeah. well, this this court case is good from that aspect. But uh, very interesting yeah. to know that actually, uh, aside from you know, I suppose constitutional law, it's not that important.
1: I don't think it's. I don't think it's the end of the world. I think. Funny, sorry, sorry, I've, I've taken up your time, Timmy um No, not at all. I think you know when there was that vote in Parliament the other day, and a lot of people thought that made the appeal kind of a complete waste of time yeah. like I said, they were wrong but a lot of people thought that I think if that vote had been held a few months ago if, if the government had been sort of shrewd enough to have that kind of vote some time ago then I think it would have been more obvious to everybody that this case wasn't about a vote in parliament it's about an act of parliament and I think, I think it, it, it the technicality of it, the, the highly constitutionally nerdy aspect of it would have been a bit more obvious to people and they might not have, um, have um, uh, you know, invested so much
2: importance in the case actually, but have, uh, just thought that it occurred to me. So, so it's, it's, it's again, yet more uh, terrible planning from the government and the lack of well, support from yeah. mistrust has led us to where we are now. <laughs>
1: yeah I
2: think so. it's good to know it makes you feel very secure about our uh, future brexit negotiations doesn't it <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah i shall not comment on that not feeling
2: too secure <laughs> well it's I, I should say that i i say this to everybody I've, I've interviewed what we have podcast 42 now but the, the problem is you get to the end of every interview you've had and it, it ends a bit negatively uh, because of the state of the world um so uh to try and leave on a positive note, um, as, w- as well as your sort of website uh, where uh, I know you blog regularly and posting regularly, and your Twitter, um, is there anywhere else you recommend that people should um, either follow on Twitter or check out websites for for actual info on Brexit legal matters? You know, at, uh, you know that hasn't got all the kind of hyperbole around it.
1: Sure. Um, well, uh, I mean, there are lots and lots actually that I could mention. Probably, probably the. Uh, Two or three, I should mention. Um, David Allen Green is um, uh, writes about um, uh, legal matters for the FT now, and uh, he he's been following this very, very closely, getting himself a bit of a reputation for saying well all the time about Brexit. <laughs> uh, I think his handle at the moment is Law and Policy, sure, or with underscores on policy. So he, he's a good account to follow. Joe Maugham. Uh, like Somerset Moore.
2: Uh Yeah, he's um, been a previous guest on this podcast.
1: Now, he, Joe jo, jo Maugham QC, he's, um, I mean, ob- obviously a QC, but he's been not only commenting on the legal stuff here, he's one of the movers and shakers in these Brexit challenges and so, you know, uh, uh, actually involved in them and uh, he's been being as transparent as he can with them as well. So he's definitely someone to follow on all this, um, on the other side of the, there's a there's a UK Constitutional Law Association blog. Gosh, I, I hope that's the right name for them. <laughs> they're, they're, if people want to get into the really meaty legal technicalities, that's a good place. Uh, there's a, a law professor who, who, who called um, Professor Mark Elliott, who's who agrees with me about the case. Actually, he agrees with me that doesn't think the like, High Court Judgment is right he's, he's Professor of Law at Cambridge and he blogs as well at a, a, a site called Public Law for everyone um, there are a few of them aren't they a Woman in Havana um, was is, is, um, uh, did a brilliant job live tweeting Supreme Court case uh, last week um, and I mean there are a lot of others that I could mention but if, if, if anybody follows really any of them they ought to come in contact with most of the uh, Uh, top legal commentary on on Brexit, I think.
2: Many thanks to Carl for speaking with me. Um, Hopefully that's cleared up some of the Brexit Supreme Court mayhem uh, for you. It definitely informed me an awful lot, and I I genuinely have changed my opinion on that. Um, It does sound like maybe the whole High Court case is just a bit of a waste of time. Um, Fascinating how hearing someone who knows their stuff talk to you can really actually inform you in life. Uh, take, You hear that, Michael Gove? Do you hear that? Do you hear what I said? Um, You can find Carl on Twitter at Carl Gardner, that's C-A-R-L-G-A-R-D-N-E-R, and you can find his blog and his links to buy his ebook on the Fixed Terms Parliament Act on his website, headoflegal.com. Uh, Also, uh, do check out all these suggestions Carl made for people to follow on Twitter. I follow most of them. And if you remember, uh, uh, Jolly and Morn was uh, a guest on this podcast talking about tax avoidance issues uh, quite some time ago. So you can look back through our episodes and find that. I would tell you what number it was, but I can't remember and I can't be bothered to look. You can do it yourself. That's what the Internet's for. Uh, next week, I'm going to be speaking to Paul Anderson at Homeless Link, which is the national membership charity for all organisations working directly with homeless people. Uh, and hopefully I'm going to be speaking to one of Homeless Link's panel of advisors uh, who were formerly homeless as well, uh, so they can talk about their experiences too. As always, if you have anyone you'd like me to try and interview or a subject area to find someone to interview about, do drop me a line at Parpol Bro on Twitter, the Parpol Bro group on Facebook or partly political broadcast at gmail.com. This week, I asked you all the slightly confusing question of what you thought a Russian-controlled Trump USA would be like. Matt Hoss said that he thought you can have Russian dolls of Trump going into other racists. I mean, that sounds almost uh, a bit porny. Uh, at John Beck, also uh, similarly, uh, reckon that the Statue of Liberty will now contain several smaller statues of questionable liberty inside. Uh, also two very similar ones Ethan D. Lawrence said in Soviet America pussy grabs you uh, which uh, that's a little reference to any of you who may remember Uncyclopedia which is still up and running, brilliant uh, which has the uh, Russian reversal tactic uh, which means that in Soviet Russia uh, they judge you I, I can't remember it, I've basically ruined it but check it out, it's really good um, and also at Gibby McDibby also says uh, in Soviet America the pussy grabs you uh, and they've also put not sure what may happen in Trump Putin America, but the thought of the topless snaps of him fishing and riding horses is horrific. Yes, Gibby McDibby, it really, really is. Uh, At Jacob Johansson uh, sent quite a few ones on Facebook. Uh, He said Gulag Alaska, Kentucky Fried Beetroot, Jack Daniels Vodka, and Dancing with the Stars will only feature Cossack dancing, which, let's be honest, would be fucking amazing. Um, At Stephen McDade says dissidents will be sent to Alaska. Uh, The KKK might finally have their first world-class Grand Wizard Master. (laughs) It does slightly worry me that they'll probably just constantly play using the White Knight. At Janvia UK says, "Oh, people are being funny. I was going to be serious and suggest the end of a drill-free Arctic Circle. Oh, oh, that's miserable. Uh, but then Janvia has also put uh, Russia will get Alaska back, Idaho will begin making a hell of a lot of potato vodka, Iowa may find a way of turning corn into alcohol. And lastly, uh, here's some suggestions from Budgie, a regular listener to the show. Uh, at Budgie says, uh, Fox News will become Bear News." So I'm guessing slightly more grisly output than they have already. Uh, The US flag gets rid of white and blue bits and May Day becomes national holiday. A new question will be on the Twitter and the Facebook uh, at the end of this week. Uh, So do check that out if you would like to supply some answers and have yours read out on the podcast with my really crap improvised replies. And that is all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast. Uh, next week is going to be the last full episode of 2016. And then I'll do a little mini end of the year one. Uh, and then this guy is having a break until January the 23rd. Yeah, that is right. You're going to have to cope with the first few weeks of the year all by yourselves. But I mean, really, unless David Bowie appears alive saying that he pranked us all the first time around, but because he's been hiding in a cave for a year, his eyes haven't adjusted to light properly and that he's hit by a truck. I mean, really, what is the worst thing that can happen in the first few weeks of Jan? Donald Trump doesn't get inaugurated until the 20th, so the Asia-Soviet war won't kick off until at least February. You'll be fine without me. Please do keep telling others to listen to this show and review it on iTunes if you enjoy it. Um, And if you don't enjoy it, why not gift wrap the device that you listen to this on and give it to a relative that you don't see often for Christmas? That way you don't have to hear this show and then they feel guilty that they've not gotten you anything because they thought you weren't going to get them anything and now they owe you and you can sort of rope them in when you need to move the bodies. Yeah, you're welcome. Don't forget, you can contact me about, well, pretty much anything, except my credit card details, as I'm not going to fall for that one again. Uh, if you want to contact me, it's at Parpoel Bro on Twitter. You can join the Parpoel Bro Facebook group. Um, please do join that. Get some good discussions going on there. I looked at the Abe Lincoln's top hat one from our guest, uh, Ben Kissel, a few weeks back, and they've got they've got damn good discussions on their forums. Let's get some on ours. Um, or you can email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. And I will see you next week. This episode was brought to you by the colours red, white and blue which combined make a really weird purple. Oh god, Theresa May means a UKIP Brexit doesn't she?
0: Be a gift-giving giant this holiday season at american-giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code gratefulag23. That's 20% off your first order at american-giant.com. Promo code gratefulag23. Acast powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend.